I'm going to give this guy a big introduction because he's a big rock star, I think, to everyone in here because we read a lot of these publications. So he's a fellow at NIST National Institute of Standards and Technology. His focus areas include information security, system security engineering, and risk management. He also leads the FISMA, the Federal Information System Modernization Act Implementation Project. This includes the development of security standards and guidelines for the federal government, contractors, and the U.S. critical infrastructure that we so desperately need. So here's just a little bit of his work. FIPS 199, security categorization. FIPS 200, security requirements. NIST SP 839, 53, 53A, 37, which includes the risk management framework, 30, 800-161, and so on. We could go on here for days. He also leads the uh, JTF, which is an interagency partnership with the Department of Defense, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the U.S. Intel community, and the Committee on National Security Systems with the responsibility for the development of the Unified Information Security Framework for the federal government and its contractors. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Ron Ross. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Dr. Ross, that was a, uh, a great speech that, uh, that you gave. You. Lots of information uh, was given out to that. So, um, we're going to start off with some simple questions for you, and then we're going to give the, uh, the audience a, a chance. Uh, so, regarding uh, 837 Rev2, can you tell us what's new in that? Sure. Uh, can you guys all hear me out there? Great. So we've been working on 837 REV2, we call it RMF 2.0, for probably the better part of a year. And the driver for our update came from the White House Modernization Initiative, originally. And we, we started to, our original focus was to look at the cybersecurity framework and try to align that framework with our framework so now that the federal government has to do both frameworks, we can do one framework and get the benefits of both. So that was the driver. And I guess I would characterize the incorporation of privacy as being one of the main new elements of that framework. Privacy has become equally important now to security in all of our federal agencies. And I know the private sector is the same way. With the GDPR especially, With GDPR, May 25th came exactly. out. Exactly. And we've had a lot of work on privacy for many, many years. We started privacy work back in 2011. And we had our first set of privacy controls in 853.04, that was back in 2013. And now we're integrating all of those privacy controls into a unified security control catalog. That's going to come out in Rev 5 at the end of this year. So we needed to have a framework, the RMF, that could actually use those privacy controls. And our privacy officers need to be able to use the same framework to select privacy controls, make sure they're implemented, assessed for effectiveness, and so all of that now is part of one framework. And we discovered that most of the RMF is equally applicable to security and privacy. That was one of the surprising things we learned. The other big thing is the addition of the, we call it step zero. There are six steps in the current RMF. The new RMF has a step zero right in the middle of that wheel. It's the organizational prep step. And that step is doing a lot of heavy lifting. It's making sure that the senior leaders, the C-suite, are very tightly connected to the operators and the implementers on the ground. 
That's great because that is not being done in um, businesses now in the commercial industry. They're, they're not involved. They think they might be involved, but they're not really involved as much as they should be because they're the ones leading the security categorization and implementation. Exactly, and the fact that every mission and business, op business function today, this includes the DOD and the warfighters to the, the uh, financial industry or the power plants. Every one of those systems are supporting critical missions that connection with the senior leadership is essential. In other words, the, the folks on the ground have to be given top cover. They have to have the bosses fully invested in the solutions that are being proposed because unless you involve the, the senior leaders in understanding how critical this technology is to their survival, and I don't use that term very lightly, if that connection is not made from day one at the very highest levels of the organization, nothing else downstream is going to go very well. So. That prep step is something, I think that's the crown jewel, if you will, for RMF 2.0. So what you're saying is the, basically the requirements for security should drive the controls. Yes. One of the other features, many of you who use the RMF now, and some of you who uh, have gone through a lot of pain and suffering, know that when you categorize your systems, we basically use the triage approach. High, moderate, low and then we give you a set of starting controls. That's the baseline controls. A lot of people in very specialized areas, like the warfighters, are building weapon systems. Those controls were designed primarily for general purpose computing environments. What happens when you're building a very specialized weapon system? The life cycle process where you have requirements drive control selection, we now give you two options on control selection. You can stay with the baseline approach, or you can use our engineering-based approach where you're in a life cycle requirements engineering process, where you sit around and figure out what does this system have to do from a functional perspective, what security requirements have to be in place, and then those security requirements drive your control selection from a very large catalog we have. And that set of controls that ends up in a weapon system is going to be a whole lot different than those 400 controls that may be in the general purpose system. Um, uh, Dr. Ross, uh, by the way, it's an honor to, to have you here. Thank you um, There is, uh, it's great to hear that uh, risk really is, is taking a, a, a front step right on, in the conversation and try to move away from a, um, a compliance-centric uh, approach. Um, obviously, every organization has a different mission, has a different size. Uh, and they have to be able to assess what those controls are going to be and how they're going to be covered. Um, but what about uh, some uh, standards like, say, say 800-171 that is uh, non-tailorable? You know, you cannot really take away controls. You know, you have to abide by that set. Uh, it's all or nothing. Well, 800-171 was uh, a document that we produced about two years ago in partnership with our, our DOD partners and the National Archives and Records Administration. And it actually surprised me. I never realized once that document was referenced in the DFARS, the number of contractors and subcontractors that were affected was, was enormous. Even state and local governments and, and universities who are getting grants, any place where control and class information can move, that now information must be protected. We, we basically have one standard of protection. Whatever we have to do to protect CUI on the federal side, that information doesn't lose any value when it goes to a non-federal organization. So we tried to develop a very customized set of 171 requirements. 
Now there's 110 requirements in that set, so it's not trivial, but it looks a whole lot lighter than the, than the moderate baseline, which is where we started. So for small companies, I know it's a heavy lift, but I, I, would, I would recommend that two things. One, those requirements raise the bar of security for your organization, even if you are not a DOD contractor or subcontractor. You're always going to have critical assets as a corporation, even a small mom and pop company. The family jewels, that the, the things that you value, those requirements are going to help you provide a higher level of security to protect your corporate assets in general. And that's what we try to talk about. What suggestions uh, will you make to, uh, say, a small company that is trying to break into the DOD contracting world? Um, or, or a mom-and-pop shop that wants to use um, some of the NIST standards to be able to approach uh, cybersecurity risk. Uh, you know, how do you drive that conversation with C-Suit and, and, and try to get them on board? Well, the small mom-and-pop companies, some of our great technology innovations come from small companies. Uh, you know, the, the two guys up at MIT in a garage that are thinking about next-generation technology. So, it's very important that we engage those small mom and pops. Now, it's a heavy lift. It's going to be more expensive for them to implement all of that protection. And that's why 171 is not hard and fast. I know you say it looks like a compliance exercise. It's not really risk-based in some sense, but there is a, the, we, we put in the 110th requirement in the first revision to that 171 guidance document. And that requirement talks about a security plan that every company, small, medium, or large, must develop. And that gives them, that gives the DOD contractors or whoever the federal contractor or the, 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 the sponsor, it gives, them, it gives you an opportunity as a small business to say, here's how far I've come in satisfying those requirements. And here's my plan moving forward. Now, that the, the federal contracting officer is gonna have to make a risk-based decisions. We understand very clearly that this is not an all or nothing situation because our federal agencies are never perfect. We have a lot of flaws and vulnerabilities and things that don't get fixed. And so we're, we're trying to move that same risk-based mentality into the 171 environment. There may be some times when the information is so critical that the DOD may say, look it, if you can't afford to do this on your own, maybe we should provide you with the IT that's already pre-configured and pre-protected, a laptop or some piece of technology that's already locked down. You give that to the people, let them have that level of protection so you can be sure that that critical data is going to be protected. And we, we were discussing right on, on the side of, before we got on the stage about how uh, cloud computing can play a role into helping smaller businesses. Yeah, cloud computing is one of our great, great innovations of the 21st century. It allows any company, any federal agency, to not have to own every piece of software and hardware and manage that day to day. It's a great thing. The cloud service providers out there, and there's a lot of big players in this business now, if they're part of the FedRAMP program, that means that they have implemented all of the NIST controls as part of the low or the moderate, and now we're moving into the high baseline as part of the FedRAMP program. What that means is that you as a consumer can go to that platform as a service, software as a service, infrastructure, and you can buy only as much as you need. And what you get with that FedRAMP approved system is the assurance that somebody else, independent third party assessor, 
has gone through and evaluated, assessed all those controls and made a statement that those controls are effective. And the cloud provider has to pay for that. So it may be less expensive for you to go to a cloud provider if you have a DOD contract at the moderate level because that moderate level will cover most of your requirements under the 171. There's a couple the DOD has put in there that may be outside the cloud, um, the moderate cloud uh, requirements, but it's not a whole lot. And that may help defer that cost and push the cost down a little bit. All right, let me change it around just a little bit. Let me, <clears throat> let me go talk about ATPs and, and threats and risk and, and, and such. So my question is, how do we take tactical advantage away from the adversaries? How do we do that? I talk about tactical advantage. The, the advantage the adversary has today is that we have a huge attack surface that results from just how we build our systems. You know, we are, we, we're driven by the technology. It is so doggone good and it, it's so pervasive. And you bring in the space of IoT now, the Internet of Things, and anything we can build, we're building and we're hooking it all together. So when you talk about attack surface, that's an enormous new growth area that never existed before. That gives the adversary a tactical advantage because they can pick the time, the place, and the circumstances of the attack. They can preload that malicious code in your infrastructure and they can pull the trigger whenever they want to. And in the meantime, they can steal stuff from you. So how do you reduce that advantage? You have to go in there and reduce the attack surface. And what that means is using some of our time-tested concepts of enterprise architecture. You basically have to reduce, make a leaner and meaner infrastructure. Go through and look at every one of your inventory items, every piece of software, every piece of hardware and application. Say, do I absolutely need these components within my system to support my critical missions and business operations? Two different discussions. Critical missions and business operations, you have to have that discussion. You have to start to thin the herd get rid of stuff, move stuff to the cloud, keep your high value assets behind, but make them a lot leaner, least functionality, least privilege. Make sure functions, ports, protocols, services are reduced to the bare minimum because you're reducing the opportunity for the adversary to launch attacks because you're giving them less things to tweak or diddle with as you go this through. This almost sounds like a zero trust environment you're talking about? Absolutely a zero trust environment. Segmented? Segmentation, uh, separate domains with different protection levels. That's, I used that analogy of a safe deposit box this morning. Uh, that's a really strong model. We don't do enough of that. We have kind of a flat file of data now that exists and that's what allows an Equ Equifax to lose an entire treasure trove or OPM to lose 22 and a half million records. If those databases are segmented and moving things into separate domains and only bringing out data that you need to support the day-to-day -day operations of the organization, that is a way to reduce that attack surface, limit the exposure, and reduce your susceptibility to those ongoing cyber attacks. Thank you. Um, going back to uh, RMF and, and some of those uh, privacy controls that you, know, you guys have been working on for years now, um, you know, well, the main question was, you know, how did GDPR um, either uh, affect or, or um, inspire some of those controls? But, you know, obviously you said that you have been now doing it for years. Right. Did anything change now with uh, the new regulation in Europe? 
Well, the GDPR, um, as all of you know, now is the, it's been in effect, I think, May the 25th, it went into effect. The real question for all of our U.S. companies is, how does that affect your ability to, to do trade around the world, especially in the European community? All I can tell you is that we were working on privacy going back to 2011. Our first iteration of our privacy controls hit the 800-53 revision 4 in 2013. We now have expanded those privacy controls and in 2018 we have, I would say, the most extensive set of privacy controls anywhere in the world. So if you are a company out there worried about GDPR, the first thing you can fall back on is look at our Rev5, which is in draft right now, our unified catalog of security and privacy controls. Those controls now, you can look at those and juxtapose those against the GDPR requirements. It's really no different than having a set of security requirements and going out and selecting a set of security controls to satisfy those requirements. And my challenge to all of you out there today is if you find a GDPR requirement that we have not addressed with a privacy control, then we will add that to the catalog before we go final in December of this year. And don't forget, privacy controls are not just about unauthorized disclosure of personal information. That's what the bad guys can do. It's also about what good guys can do with the information they keep on you. So how much PII can they uh, collect on you as an individual? What can they do with that information? How long can they keep it? That's the problem you see with companies like Facebook and all of this digital footprint. We're piling up massive amounts of PII. That's why privacy is so critical. That's why it's going back into the RMF. We want those two disciplines to ride equally in one framework. And obviously providing feedback to while it is on draft is important. It's critical. Um, critical. Let me ask you real quick, how does it integrate or do you see an integration to uh, CSF? Yeah, the cybersecurity framework, as again, many of you know, uh, 2014, NIST built that framework originally for the critical infrastructure, I think it was 16 or 18 sectors, and it was a collaborative effort. We, did, uh, we had our risk management framework long before that. We had our framework, but in 2017, when President Trump signed the executive order, that made the cybersecurity framework now mandatory for our federal agencies. So now, the cyber framework is still voluntary for the private sector, but the federal government now has two mandatory frameworks. So we took the challenge of integrating both frameworks. We don't want our federal agencies to have to do two frameworks. We don't want our customers to have to do that. So we took apart the CSF and we aligned everything we could with all the steps in the RMF. And you'll see that as you go through RMF 2.0. Every time you go through one of our steps or our tasks, you're gonna see a little tagline that relates a cybersecurity function or a task or a category to that particular RMF test. So what that means is you can execute the RMF and still be getting a lot of the benefit from the CSF. And that's a really important thing to do. Um, one thing you had mentioned was leadership, governance, and accountability. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, leadership, governance, and accountability. I, I don't think there are, are three more important terms any place because if you look at any great military organization or any great organization, the common denominator is always a strong 
forceful, dynamic leader. Every organization really works well, and that, that applies to security and privacy in everything that we do as well. If you don't have strong leaders that are fully vested in the 21st century, and when I say vested, I mean understanding what the modern threat space looks like, not just in general terms, but what can those modern cyber threats actually do to your organization? Where are your vulnerabilities as a system or an organization? What can those threats actually do when those threats exploit your vulnerabilities? That's an individualized discussion. It doesn't apply in general. It's a really specific discussion for every organization. And what is the mission or business impact of that potential threat exploiting that vulnerability? If you don't get the senior leaders involved in doing that and role-playing, they are not going to be taking the kinds of actions we need to have meaningful change. They all know their cyber attacks happening. They read about it every day. They may have even had one. But the real question is, what do you do to move forward in the future to change the way we do business from how we're doing business today? Because the way we're doing business today is not going to be effective in stopping some of these high-end attacks. Thanks. And we just have time for one more question. Um, this is coming from James Howard with Centaur. He's got a question for you. Let me get the mic over here. Morning, Dr. Ross. Um, for those of us embroiled in RMF, and especially those of us in the Army. I'm not hearing you so uh, well. For those of us embroiled in RMF, especially those of us in the Army, um, there is still a large compliancy focus. It's basically compliancy management framework. What is your opinion on the role of compliancy and checklists, and checklist security? We realize that's folly, but what is the role of that within the RMF? Yeah, compliance and the risk management framework. A lot of people associate the RMF and the fact we have baseline controls with compliance. And what does compliance uh, end up being today? It's largely a checklist mentality. Give me the 10 things you want me to do. Let me do those things. Let me go home and call it a day. That is just opposite of what the RMF was all about from day one. We built a framework that is customizable to every particular mission or business operation out there. Every environment of operation is different. And what I would say is don't let the senior leadership turn the RMF into a compliance exercise. You let the RMF be the RMF. And that means you have to have the leadership and be bold enough to actually take a set of controls and either generate those controls from your actual security requirements, or if you're using baselines, don't be afraid to tater out controls that don't work. My favorite example still is the air traffic control system in the tower. You know, we have one control that's called the screensaver control, and that clicks in after 15 minutes. I guarantee you, that control is mandatory in every baseline, but it's definitely not in the air traffic control tower because you don't want the screen going blank when that air traffic controller is trying to bring an American Airlines 787 heavy. That control is tailored out. So use the RMF as it was supposed to be used and don't put up with simplistic compliance-based approaches because they fail with 100% certainty. That's all I can tell you. And then that's why you got to have strong leaders that are willing to take those kind of risks. And I think the Army, 
the NAV Air Force, all of our services, if we could bring the same risk mentality that the warfighters bring to the combat operations. In other words, the best laid plans of every warfighter rarely, if ever, survive the first day of combat operations. We know that. Let's bring that same mentality to our cyber fight. If we do that, we are going to actually win this fight and not continue to be victims and always be playing catch up and, and looking at this thing from a, just a, a passive perspective. And, and with that, we're out of time. We'd like to thank Dr. Ron Ross for uh, being with us today. Um, if you have any questions for him, please reach out on the floor. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you Dr. Ross. Thanks a lot. Thank you.